Hello, my name is Daniel Nenny, founder of SemiWiki, the open forum for semiconductor professionals. Welcome to the Semiconductor Insiders podcast series. If you have a topic you'd like us to cover, please post it on semiwiki.com and we'll get right to it. My guest today is Stephen Fairbanks, CEO of Certus Semiconductor. Stephen is an ESD pioneer with over 30 years of experience, starting with his time at Intel, SRF Technologies, and now Certus Semiconductor. Welcome to the podcast, Stephen. Thank you, Dan. It's a pleasure to be here. Can you share a little bit about your journey from Intel to Certus? Yeah, it, it was really by happenstance. I uh, was originally hired in Intel as an analog and RF test engineer. Uh, ended up working myself into the RF group as a design engineer. I was classically trained in RF circuit design. And at the time being, Intel was pioneering a lot of uh, new technologies into the cell phone division, the Wi-Fi and Bluetooth uh, radios and CMOS. And it turned out that uh, they were having some early problems with a lot of ESD issues in some of these RF interfaces. And the teams, a lot of the senior engineers really didn't want to deal with it. And I was a junior engineer, and I had some experience with ESD working in in my time prior to Intel working in scientific instrumentation, particularly time-of-flight mass spectrometers. And so they kind of assigned me to figure out the ESD. At the time, this was in the late 90s, um, Intel had two primary ESD engineers, Tim Maloney and Neil Clark, who had been pioneers in the industry since the 70s and the 80s. Uh, Neil Clark did DRAM and memory ESD, and Tim Maloney handled all of Intel's microprocessor ESD. Neither one of them wanted to own it, but they were both willing to tune, uh, to tutor me and train me and let me work under them as a protege. And I spent a good four, six years uh, flying out, working with Neil and Tim on a daily basis. Um, learned from the best. Uh, ended up developing a lot of RFESD at Intel. And then Intel sold off a huge chunk of their cellular division back in the day uh, to uh, Marvell and a lot of the RF groups got spun off. And as the RF engineers scattered to the industry, I started getting calls from colleagues from all over the industry saying, hey, we, we need some help on our RFESD. Um, what's the possibility you could do some consulting or moonlighting for us? And I realized that was a good opportunity to maybe get out and test the waters as a consultant. I started doing that, and after three years, I just had so many of my customers asking me if I could just build the entire IO library for them. Um, because prior to leaving Intel, I was actually the IO collateral group, managing IO collateral for all the communications teams. Uh, and that's pretty much the story. That's a great story. Great story. So how is ESD evolving as a process, uh, as processes migrate to advanced nodes? The ESD... The principles in the physics haven't changed at all. What we run into as we get into the advanced nodes is everything is a lot more delicate. The junctions, the gate oxides, the dielectrics, they break down more easily. They don't tolerate the higher voltages. They don't handle the currents as well. So what you end up having to do is you have to um, apply some of these same strategies we've used in older planar technologies, but you have to evolve them uh, to a point where you have to take advantage of FinFET technologies. There's actually, what we've discovered a lot of times by accident is we put devices and structures in the FinFET nodes and the advanced nodes, 
is that they don't behave exactly the same as they did in planar. Um, and sometimes we've discovered weaknesses and other times we've discovered strengths. So there's a lot of subtle layout techniques apply to the advanced nodes um, to, to get some back some of that physics performance we lost with our traditional techniques. Um, but at the end of the day, ESD is still a matter of engineering the layouts and the devices to handle currents and voltages that the processes are not designed for. Uh, sometimes that just means being creative with how you arrange your structures, how you arrange your layout, how you flow the current. You really have to pay attention to where the currents are flowing in the junctions, how to mitigate heat and suck the heat out of the devices being protected, because uh, it really is the heat that does most of the damage. And that that's kind of a, it's not a, a a detailed uh, answer for you there, Dan, but what basically what it means is that we're getting creative. We get creative, we find mechanisms that didn't exist in old planar technologies that now exist in the FinSET, and we embed them into our ESD structures. Oh, that's a good answer. So ESB, ESD has been a problem because people could not simulate. Um, do you see new tools emerging to address this? In the last 20 years, the ESD community as a whole has been desperately trying to develop tools to address this. We do have in place a lot more tools that can do a lot more checking. Um, you have tools such as PERC and Silicon Frontline and Magwell um, and ANSYS is Red Hawk. And all of those tools have strengths and they all have weaknesses. Um, some of them do certain things really well, like simulating an ESD event into the devices. Uh, others do things really well, like checking your topology and making sure that you have ESD structures in place and that the resistances or the current paths aren't, um, uh, aren't problematic. But at the end of the day, a lot of the time, the tools still are not doing, do not have the capability to predict precisely your ESD performance or whether or not you're gonna have a pass-fail. The tools still suffer from the fact that we can only program into them what we've been able to model and measure in the silicon. Um, and you only have so many test structures that you can model and measure, but the actual product designs out there are infinite in their variability. And what the tools haven't yet gotten good at doing is predicting some kind of parasitic failure that wasn't anticipated or wasn't modeled prior. So while the tools are really good, have come a long way in the last 20 years and all of them are, have improved dramatically, um, you still have the problem a lot of times you have to wade through false failures and you have a, the problem that sometimes you still get ESD failures that escape the tools because they just, it was some uh, anomalous parasitic uh, that nobody anticipated and that the tools didn't take into account when they were coded. Right. So IOs are what we call foundation IP. Do you see them evolving past that or will we continue to reuse IO designs from you know different generations? I see IO designs actually evolving dramatically. Um, I would say myself, you know, when we were doing IO designs uh, 10 years ago, a lot of the IOs were very much very similar. You could take an IO from 180, port it to 90, port it to 60, port it to 40, port it to 28. Um, the features were all basically the same. They all had a basic driver, an input receiver, 
pull-up, pull-down circuitry, the ESD protection, um, maybe some selectable slew rates, drive strengths, whatever. They were all kind of similar run-of-the-mill. Now, today, our I.O. libraries are diverging dramatically. Um, in fact, some of our, our cutting-edge I.O. libraries that we're designing now, even in older technologies in 180 or 65, they're being highly specialized. Um, Multi-protocol IOs and multi-voltage IOs are becoming very common. Designing an IO that can switch between I2C, I3C, SPI, that can work off of 0.9 volt, 1.8 volt, 2.5, 3.3 volt. Um, that is exceptionally more complex than the IOs we were doing 10 years ago, where maybe they just needed I2C and SPI at 3.3 volts. In the, in the more advanced nodes, we're having more and more customers come to us and they're targeting multiple markets. So we have, we're doing some specialty IOs that uh, can do you know, five or six protocols at three or four different voltage levels. And then on the other hand, we have the IoT space or we have in some of the specialty AI spaces and AI products coming out, we're developing ultra low power IOs that don't need to have all the bells and whistles, but they need to leak, you know, picoamps and nanoamps of current, even at hot fast. So I would say at this point, it, you know, product differentiation is driving IO and foundation IO libraries to radically differentiate. And you can have five products on the same process technology in say 22 or 12 or seven nanometer, and they all have radically different IO pieces because their product differentiation required it. So IO topology is, is evolving dramatically and getting much more complex as we move forward, especially if you want a unique product or you're trying to beat out your competition in terms of area, power, features. That's good to hear. Yeah, I spent quite a bit of my career in um, IP and libraries, uh, standard cell and SRM and such. And, and yeah, we, we always talked about IOs. Oh, don't worry about IOs. We can reuse what we had before, <laughs> but clearly that's changed. So Certus is a relatively small company and, uh, you know, you're competing against some very large IP companies. Um, how do you stay viable in, in this very competitive marketplace? Well, the truth is um, we, we are outperforming our larger competitors, but I think it's more not in terms of volume, um, we can't output the sheer number of um, IP that the large, larger competitors output. But where, where we're finding a, a very successful business in the model is in the niche areas where we have customers come to us and like, look, you know, we looked at this IP over here and it's just leaking way too much current. And they're telling us it's going to be three years before they can work on it and they want an exorbitant amount of money. We're a much more nimble company. We can usually tailor and optimize NIO library for most of our customers in the two to four month range. Um, and we're also very, very good at sitting down with our customers, brainstorming with them about what it is they're trying to achieve. And I really find a lot of joy in sometimes helping my customers re-architect their interfaces and say, look, if this is what you're trying to achieve with your product, we can actually do X, Y, Z. And I think that'll give you better market permeability, market attractiveness and competitiveness. And a lot of times their marketing guys get really excited and then they start throwing in all these wish list items they had that they thought wasn't possible. And you're like, yeah, yeah, we can integrate that into the IO. You know, some, some of it's over the top, but sometimes um, when you work with their teams, 
and you co-architect the IO designs, um, you come up with really creative solutions where the customers get super excited because you're enabling their products. Um, a, a key example of that is we do a lot of 10 to 20 volt RF and analog IOs in nominal uh, 1.8 and 3.3 volt CMOS processes by re-engineering the layers. And, you know, it's not always foundry approved per se, but we've enabled some really interesting IO features that our customers absolutely love that enabled them to really target specific markets that they didn't think they could win in. Right. Yeah, you know, we've been working with you guys for about a year, and the thing we always hear is uh, how good your customer interfacing is. So I guess that, you know, you mentioned that, but um, that's a pretty big deal in IP because uh, off-the-shelf IP doesn't always handle your requirements, you know, the best. If I was just selling off-the-shelf IP, I probably wouldn't be able to survive against the foundation IP companies as a whole. Right. I think that's been our viability is that we've been able, we are really good and nimble at tailoring our IOs specific to our customers' needs. Right. So where does Certus's uh, future lie? What's coming up? We, we have big dreams and big plans, right? Everyone has big right. dreams and big plans, but uh, um, we one of our key pieces is we want we don't want to forget our core market. So we've been we've been growing our IO team and our ESD team. Um, I have a, a, a couple of new engineers I've been training in ESD to take over some of the roles I've been doing as the lead ESD architect at our company. And we're trying to expand our capability, our ability to optimize and tailor more custom IO libraries for a greater number of customers in parallel. Um, so, you know, just our fundamental growth has been our big plan. At the same time, um, I have a number of members on our team now who have a really strong analog background. So we're expanding more and more into the converter space and into the RF radio space. Uh, we have a lot of experience on our team uh, doing with individuals doing TIAs, RF, RF front-ins, LNAs. Uh, small radios and converters, sigma delta, uh, successive approximation, et cetera, et cetera. So we're looking at expanding into that space in the near future. Um, we're doing small bit projects here and there in the analog and RF space, but for now, we're still trying to remain focused to our core, which is grow and expand our, our, our IO portfolio, push into the more advanced nodes and release much more flexible and diverse IO libraries that can target huge industry space. Um, we've expanded a lot in the last six years into the RF uh, rad hard space for our IO libraries, and we've been doing a lot of high temperature IOs as well as automotive grade IOs. So that's an area too where it's, we've expanded into in the last five years. Oh, that's good, yeah, aerospace and automotive, those, those, are, those are booming markets right now. So. Just a final question, uh, Stephen. How do customers normally engage with Certus? Uh, the most common engagement has been word of mouth. Uh, they reach out to friends or colleagues. Uh, someone hands them our email and they get in contact with us. But the best place right at this point, if you're, if you're new or you don't have a direct contact with us, is either at our webpage at www.certus-semi.com 
or you can also find a lot of our IP on the DNR catalog um, and reach us through there as well. We're also on LinkedIn. Great. You can look up Certus Semiconductor on LinkedIn as well, and just kind of any of those methods tend to be the most common uh, avenues for reaching us. Yeah, I have seen you on LinkedIn. Well, it's great to talk to you again, Stephen. Um, you know, we've met a few times, but it's good to catch up. And uh, thank you for your time. Thank you very much, Dan, for having me. That concludes our podcast. Thank you all for listening and have a great day. Thank you.